here. Kind of shallow in here today. Everybody's out for the holidays, but that's okay. It's always it's always an honor. As uh, Carly prayed that you know we have the freedom uh, and liberty to be here uh, without the threat of our lives. So should always be grateful for the fact that we are able to do this and do it biblically, by the way, because we can easily compromise, right, and be no threat at all. But the fact that we are able to come together without compromising is a beautiful thing. It glorifies Christ and it feeds the saints, and that's the that's why we do what we do. Turn your Bibles, if you would. Let's just get right into it today. First uh, Samuel chapter seven. First Samuel chapter seven. First Samuel chapter seven. We're going to be reading the first five verses, and that's where I'm going to be. I was going to continue on through, but I thought I would save the end portion for Brother Sean and. Uh, because there's a lot here, and I think we do injustice to the scriptures if we try to hurry through things just for the sake of hurrying through and taking huge chunks of scripture and not really giving it the credence that it deserves. So um, we're just going to do the beginning of this uh, chapter today, First uh, Samuel chapter 7, reading, um, reading verse 1. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and fetched up the ark of the Lord. And brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill, and sanctified Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass, while the ark abode in kiriath Jerem, that the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away among you, put away the strange gods, and the Ashtoreth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtoreth, and served the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you and unto the Lord. Let us go ahead and pray. Father, we just thank you for our time together this morning. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this, um, each event that occurs in biblical history, Lord, that we can, we can glean um, from the word of God and we can, we can see how it points to Christ, how the word, Lord, and every portion of the word of God points to our Savior, who is the culmination and the fulfillment, Lord, of every covenant. So, Lord, be glorified in the preaching of your word today. Lord, and open our hearts and help us, Lord, to receive what it is you'd want to communicate to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to highlight three points uh, from our text this morning uh, that are seen from this event that we as God's people would do well to imitate and to apply. The first being seen in verse 1, we see the watchman where we are introduced to this particular position of Eleazar, who was sought out to keep the ark of the Lord. Uh, the Bible says that he was sanctified. And he was set apart as a what you would call a guardian or a watchman, one who was given the responsibility of overseeing the holy chest of Yahweh. 
Then we see, uh, number two, we see the preacher. Uh, we see the much-needed office of the prophet, a preacher. In this case, it is the messenger Samuel, vocally declaring uh, what Israel must do in order to receive restoration to the Lord, a call, really uh, calling a nation to repentance corporately. And then number three, we see a repentant people. Uh, we see the gathering of God's people coming together corporately to repent and to be restored unto the Lord. All three of these areas uh, will be the focus of our message this morning. First, let's look at the, the idea of a watchman, of a watchman as we see. It says in verse 1, Then the men, <clears throat> excuse me, then the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill. And then it uses the word consecrated, or we can use the word sanctified, Eleazar, his son. And it uses the word to keep the ark of the Lord. Obviously, this course was taken after the men of Beth Shemesh had been struck down by the Lord because they had looked into the ark. He struck down 50,070 men that we read. And the people, it says, lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. Therefore, in response to this judgment, which obviously was ordained of God and God's purpose and providence is seen in it by sending it, that they should honor and fear the Lord. It's interesting because we see um, this great slaughter come upon God's people. You know, we see the curses um, that came to the Philistines, and we see where God uses pain to drive people to himself. And obviously, could you imagine this great slaughter happening by peeking in the box of Yahweh, and he just destroys a multitude of people. I mean, that's going to get your attention. That's going to cause great fear and get great respect to come upon the people. It was said in the days of Jonathan Edwards, just prior to the Great Awakening, he said this move started that happened in his small town of Southampton. Someone had died. And it said when that person had died, a holy fear came upon the people. And people started gathering in their living rooms. And this is where the birthing of the great uh, awakening began. And sometimes this is what the Lord does in his ways of waking us up. Um, and a lot of times it's, it's painful. And a lot of times he does things, you know, that we would call shock and awe. That would awaken us to this reality of, you know, Stop rebelling against God because God is a holy and righteous and perfect God. He just doesn't wink at our sin. God hates sin. You know, you, you hate the sin of your neighbor who doesn't know Christ. But those who know Christ and continue to rebel like a lost neighbor is really causes God to even bring severe, not necessarily just judgment. It is judgment, but it's chastisement to his people. It's loving, believe it or not. It may not look like it because you don't hear about this much, but it's God's mercy and judgment. I mean, you think all these people just lost their life, but you don't know how holy God is. That's the problem. You know, we look at all these people who died, but we don't realize the reason why you look at it the way you look at it and you judge situations the way that you judge them is because you don't see God in truth. 
You don't understand the holiness of God. This reality that God does not take um, his name being drugged through the mud lightly or being irreverenced or being disrespectful uh, to his name. As you can see, God will wipe out anybody he wants to wipe out if that means getting your attention. And as sad as that seems, there are things you could probably recall in your own lives. I can recall just recently uh, things that have happened to me personally, painful, painful, you know, that really you look at that and you say, man, where's my true metal here? Like, is this, is this situation push me, this pain, has it pushed me to God? Or has it made me like bitter and, and, and made me harder towards God? And, you know, we've got to ask ourselves these things when things do happen. It says, Then the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. You see great pains taking place here. Listen, we're not, listen, they, they got it that time. They understood. Not only was Eli's completely, his dynastic family was completely destroyed. The ark of the Lord was taken and captured by God's most hated enemies, right? That wasn't enough to get their attention because they still were, had this attitude of disrespect towards God, towards his presence, towards the ark of the Lord. And God wipes out thousands and wakes them up to the point to where now they're going to do something. They're going to safeguard the ark of the Lord. They're going to show the respect to God to such an extent that they're going to take it and they're going to put it under someone who can be the watchman, the guardian, the safeguard of the truth. And I understand it's just this is just symbolic. It represents the presence of God. This isn't the Lord in the box, right? God is, is, is over the entire universe. God cannot be contained in some little box. But the reality is here, it's how we treat what God has put together and what he's ordained. It's our respect for God himself. How we treat the ark of the Lord is exactly how we treat the Lord himself, which is extremely dangerous. But they consecrated, they sanctified Eleazar, who was the son of Abinadab, which basically from most theologians would agree, even Josephus um, had stated that um, Abinadab um, was probably a Levite. And as you can see, study through the, some of the different portions of scripture as well, it would show that in fact he was a Levite. So they wanted to place the ark in a position to where, first of all, God would know, listen, we want to respect you. We want to love you. We want to honor you. But we've got to put you in a place where we can keep our grubby hands off from you. We've got to re- literally take it away from immature people, disrespectful people, idolatrous people, remove that from them, put it under someone that's going to be a protector of the things of God. Someone that they know who had good character, good integrity, a godly man, a godly household that could be trusted with the ark of the Lord. This is a huge responsibility, but this is the pains that needed to be taken to such an extent to honor God and to keep things safe and no longer um, allowing God's name to be blasphemed. 
And many believe, because this is only speculation, that this is this whole operation that took place was probably consulted by Samuel himself. He probably organized it because of what he was doing at the time and who he was. He was a prophet, and he was operating in such a fashion um, that they would, it would really point to him as the one who would have the maturity, the mind, the, the heart uh, um, to do what's right. And he was a judge as well. So we see um, this coming to place, and all the fingers point to Samuel, but obviously that is... Um, speculation. We don't know for sure, but we can pretty much determine that's probably what's going on. Uh, we know that Eleazar himself, you know, he was he was consecrated. He was basically anointed or set apart, sanctified, but he was not consecrated as a priest. He was not consecrated as a priest. He was constituted not as a priest, but as a watchman or what someone may refer to as a guardian, someone to watch over and um, spend his time in his office, what his job position would be is to make sure not only to watch over the ark, but watch over people that they would be coming in and drawing close to the ark disrespectfully and losing their lives in the process. John Gill states, not only was he to watch it that it might not be taken away, but to keep persons from it, from touching it or using it irreverently. And such as were not allowed to come nigh it, as well as keep the place clean where it was put. And for this he was appointed by the priest or the elders of the city and was set apart for this particular service. And this is really ultimately where it all begins. It really starts with um, sanctifying the word of God, really. I mean, the principle here is really first and foremost, stop playing around, being disrespectful uh, with the things of the Lord. And first things first, let's put this in the best care we can. Now, as you know, this isn't the finality where the Ark of the Lord ends. Fifty years later, it finally comes into David's kingdom where he has it brought in to his kingdom. And we know that that is the proper place for it. We know this isn't the ultimate end place for it, but it was the best place possible where they could put it to the point to where God would at least see that their hearts were in an attitude of worship. And it is really where it all began. It says that they brought up, or another translation says that they fetched up and sanctified or set apart Eleazar, literally had to keep it out of their reach so no more damage would be done. It's kind of a rescue mission if, if, if you look at it that way. And someone needed to be appointed the task of safeguarding the Ark of the Lord. Says the ark of the Lord, and he brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill, and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And we know the watchman, and we guys understand the whole idea and office of a watchman in the Bible were guards that were responsible for protecting towns, uh, military installations uh, from surprise enemy attacks and uh, potential threats and potential dangers. They also were used to warn their own people of approaching enemies. They would sound the alarm or they would blow a trumpet um, to say there's enemies at the gates. Eleazar was not this type of watchman, but his role was to keep guard and watch over the ark. I wanted to drive that point uh, this morning because I really wanted you to get this idea of how important it is um, to honor the Lord and to, and, 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 um, to watch over 
what he's put into our trust. And how God sees his word and how we honor his word and how we safeguard his word. I mean, the church really is the guardian of the gospel, the guardian of the word of God. We've been entrusted, the Bible says, right? With the word of God, entrusted. God trusts us with his word. That we, wouldn't, that we wouldn't desecrate his word, that we wouldn't treat it disrespectfully, that we wouldn't act irreverent uh, about the word of God and bring great shame upon the gospel, where many in our day are ashamed of the gospel. They're ashamed of the word of God. They're ashamed what the word of God says to, to not only to the lost, but also to those of us who call ourselves the people of God. We live in a continual state of being offended in our day. Everybody's offended about about something and they don't like what the word of God says and they'll preach from the word of God or they twist the scriptures and make it say something that the Bible's never said just so they can somehow accommodate the world, accommodate people, not offend anybody. So they, they, they change things and it's blasphemous. And really at the end of the day, you, it, it may seem a little less severe than what was going on in the days here of what happened um, with Israel, but it's really not. It's really not. The principle is still the same. It's still the same. Um, it really is. It really is the part of God's people to take the word and, and, and to be able to be a protector and a guardian of the word of God. The church of Jesus Christ, the local church especially, you know, where we have a pulpit, we have a place to execute a medium, a vehicle to execute and preach the word of God. We must be rightly dividing the word of God. We must be preaching the truth. Uh, we must be preaching the real gospel. We must be preaching the real God. Um, this, this really becomes almost a sacred ark as we're up here proclaiming the word of God. We're not to, we're not to sell uh, people short. We're not to sell the Lord short. We're to be honest with the preaching of God's word. Amen. We've been consecrated, you know. We've been sanctified. We've been set apart. The Bible uses that quite frequently to show the office of ministers, that they've been set, a, set aside, set apart for the work of the ministry. And if we can't look at that, I know we all fail. I know we all screw up. I know many of us, you know, deal with stuff. But the, the, the point that's being made here is that, you know, we, we, we see here Eleazar, he was set apart. He was consecrated. He was sanctified for the work of being a guardian of the ark of the Lord. But in the same fashion, we as the people of God have been set apart um, to be guardians of the word of God. So it doesn't, it doesn't um, go off the rails like so many have in our day. I mean, look around, you see a majority, and I hate to say it because I don't ever want to sound like, um, you know, like I'm picking on everybody else. Like we're the only true church. I never want to come off that way because sometimes uh, people, it, preachers can come off that way. Um, and sound like they're just like, oh, we're the only ones with the truth. We're the only ones doing everything right. I mean, that's not true either. There's a lot of very godly biblical churches out there. But for the most part, a majority of those, at least in America, are really preaching another gospel. They really have formulated and, 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 and designed and invented a whole new Christianity that, that everybody likes, the world likes, and everybody's, everybody can kind of come and do what they want to do, and everybody's accepted. and um, it, it's, just, it's just so far beyond what the Bible teaches and what's being preached today. And it's really sad. So we have been called, we have been set apart 
are commanded and responsible and accountable for how we not only preach the word of God, but how we teach it and how we live as well. We see part of the protection strategy here was not only finding the right man, but is also finding the right place. It wasn't just about finding the right guy. They found the right guy, but also they needed to find a place where they could position the ark of the Lord in a way where obviously it could still be seen. People could still turn towards uh, the ark of the Lord and still pray without drawing close to it and touching it. Um, It says that it was in the hill. Uh, The translation, or on the hill, is preferred. It was because lofty heights were still considered fit places for Jehovah's worship. It was it was high up, you know, and it was in what would uh, it was in uh, Kiriath Jerem was really was a place that was really if you want to take that and and, um, its original name would really be the place of the wood. It was really in a wooded area. Um, but also it was in a high area. It was, it was put in a position where it was safe, but also it could still be seen. And that was extremely important for the people of God because what that did was is that they could see that and they could be reminded of, of the Lord and his presence that used to be with them, that left. Could you imagine like just looking and seeing and, 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 and seeing, uh, you know, the ark up there in the hill and going, wow, I remember the day when the Lord was with us, when the Lord blessed us, when the Lord gave us victory over our enemies, you know. And they started, the Bible says, they started to groan. You know, they started to long again for the presence of God. You know, they started to long for it. And they started to miss God, you know. And, and it, was, it, was, it was so well done by God's providence and sovereignty, that God did it in just a way where it would provoke the people back to him. And it's just a beautiful thing because just how it was, how it was taken care of, um, how God even in his, in, his, in his ordained wrath brought destruction to wake up the people, the pain pushed them towards putting it in the right spot, the best spot that they could find at the time, and, and secure it. And put a godly man, a sanctified man, a consecrated man. Don't put some, you know, some doofus up there playing hot potato with the ark of the Lord. You know, we needed, we needed someone who you could trust. A selected man who would obviously understand um, how important it was um, to have the ark of the Lord protected. Also because it was both a strong place and where it would be most safe and a high place Therefore, it was visible at some distance and to many persons, which was convenient for them who were at the time to direct their prayers and faces towards the ark. I like what Romans 15, 4 says before, because sometimes we can find ourselves so concentrated because we know context is everything, but contextual application really falls on deaf ears. You know, it just becomes an exaggerated Bible study. You know, the reality is here is that in Romans 15, 4, it says, for whatever things were written before, were what? Were written for what? Our learning. You know, this is really an opportunity for us to learn from this particular event and say, what is going on here? More than just a surface reading, um, more than just expositing it and, 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 and really bringing out the truth of Scripture, but also asking ourselves, how does this apply to us? Where does this, how does this apply to the church today? And it's a, really a simple, it really isn't complicated at all. Don't disrespect God. 
Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't tolerate things that God hates. Don't support the very things just because it's easier on you. Because the Christian life is not an easy life. It's a life where we're going to be challenged until we step into our graves. It's going to be a continual friction until we leave this planet. We must realize that. But these things were written for our learning. So we would learn from this and understand this is the task of the church, to be the guardians of the gospel. Pastors and shepherds need to guard their flocks. We need to be the Eleazars of today. We need to guard this pulpit. We need to guard and shepherd our flocks. So the idiots coming in here, bringing in, 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 in all kinds of crazy stuff, and destroying everything in their sight. I like what Acts 20, uh, 30 and 31 says. It says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, he says, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away, what? The disciples after themselves. 2 Corinthians 11.13 says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, pretending or masquerading as apostles of Christ. And this is where we, as not only the people of God, but also the pastors and the leaders of the church, need to be the Eleazars of our day, saying, No, you know, we're guarding the truth, we're guarding our flock, and this is where we're going to stay until Christ returns. And we're not going to let up for anything. We're not going to accommodate. We're not going to compromise. We're going to continue to press on no matter what happens to our reputations, to our financial dispositions. It doesn't matter. Because at the end of the day, as fast as life goes by, you're not going to be standing before men on the day of judgment. You'll be standing before the King of Kings and give an account on how you cared for and guarded his word. It's true. You know, it's also worth noting, just on a side note, that if you study the history of the pulpit, you'll see that the pulpits of the 17th and the 18th and the 19th century were raised up high because they felt that the word of God must not only be central to our worship, but also the word of God must be elevated above and over the church. A sense of awe and wonder, respect and reverence to God's holy word. And this is really what we are seeing here. Instead of irreverent behavior seen throughout this story, we are seeing the ark of the Lord taken to a place of respect. You know, it's always nice when, if you go, I lived in Scotland for a couple of years and I traveled around the British Isles and I went to some, my wife and I could testify to this as well. We went to some old churches. I went to John Knox's old, his church. And it's interesting because there's a staircase that leads up to his pulpit. And he sits in this round circle and he would, he would preach. And it was way up here, you know. His feet would have been about right here. And it wasn't because he was elevating himself. It was because he was elevating the word of God. He was showing the importance that the word of God must be elevated above the people of God. And that's how we should see the word of God as elevated and above. We shouldn't be central to worship, right? It isn't about us. You know, it should be about the Word of God. People should be looking to the Word of God. And it's the attitude of the Puritans as well. And throughout the 16th, 17th, I think, in, no, sorry, 17th, 18th, and 19th century, you will see, if you do, like, look up some images of pulpits, you'll see that they were all really high up. 
And you think, man, that's really odd. But it really isn't. It just showed you their, <clears throat> their respect for the Word of God. Brings us to our second point, quickly moving along. The prophet. The prophet. First, we see the watchman going through this story, but also see, we see the prophetic coming into play here. We see the messenger. We see the preacher coming into the scene. Once again, we see Samuel's really second uh, ministerial um, responsibility. First, he calls out Eli, right? And then now we see him calling out the nation. In verse 3, it says, Then Samuel spoke. And I love this word, you know, because it takes a lot of guts to speak up. It takes a lot of guts. And that's why Jesus said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel, to preach the gospel, to declare it. You know, uh, it says that John the Baptist, he was really a town crier. He spoke the word of God, lost his head for it. Um, but, you know, you, you, will, you will notice that, you know, Samuel spoke to, to all the house of Israel saying, if you return to the Lord with all your hearts and put away your foreign gods of the Ashtoreths from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. But before we dive into Israel's sin, let us first look at the fact that the message of truth needed to be declared and delivered. In every instance of scripture, you'll always see God always sends his messenger a prophet to declare his word. I love how the Bible starts and ends with the preaching of God's word. You'll notice from Noah, where the Bible says he was a, a preacher of righteousness, all up to the book of Revelation, where it says that the sword came out of our Savior's mouth, which represents the word of God. The testimony of Scripture bears witness to this reality. You look at the ministry of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, John the Baptist, the disciples, the apostle Paul, and our Lord himself never failed to call others to repentance, especially those that called themselves the people of God. And so should we. You're not going to get in trouble dropping off uh, brownies at someone's door. But the moment you speak up and you declare something to someone, you vocally, you vocally declare something, that's when all the trouble begins. Look at the life of Christ. It was only when he spoke up is when they wanted to take his head off. And that's the same with us. We've got to be willing to speak up. We've got to be willing to even lose our heads if need be. But we must be those that speak up. We look at the sins of Israel in the days of Samuel. You can go to, you can kind of find the, I wouldn't say the necessarily the very beginning of their sins, but you can see in Judges 2, verse 11, it says, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, or you can say Baal, however you prefer. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and they served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And the anger of the Lord was hot, it says. I mean, that's a really interesting verse. Was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around. So they could no longer stand. They no longer could stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. 
as the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were greatly distressed. And then in verse 16, it says, Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. The mercy of God, the grace of God. And yet they would not listen to their judges. But they played the harlot with other gods and they bowed down to them. In verse 3, it says, Samuel spoke to the whole house of Israel, which, interestingly enough, they had assembled at one of their uh, yearly, they had three yearly feasts, and this was one of them. So at this point, when Samuel brought this alarming message to them, really, I would say it's, it's, it, is, it is alarming, but I think at this particular time, God's presence was warming the hearts of his children. That they were beginning to long for God, groan for God, miss God, want God back. So the, the timing of this message is literally perfect. And he comes at one of their feasts. He says, if you return to the Lord with all your hearts and then put away your foreign gods and your ashtoreths from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only, he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So we see here the first point in his message is if you do return, if. If and then statement, if you do return from what? From your backsliding and your idolatry. With all your hearts, what does this mean? For outward services and professions that avail absolutely nothing. Put away the strange gods. Destroy their images, altars, and groves. They are strange. You do not know them as helpers, saviors, or defenders. Prepare your hearts. Let your hearts be straight and steady. And serve him only. Have no other religious service but his and obey his laws. And he will deliver you. Vain are your own exertions. He will deliver you in such a way as to show that the excellence of the power is of himself alone. You know, what is it about God crashing feast days? I always try to put that like this. Why is he just in this mode of crashing parties, right? You know, with a message of repentance. I mean, look at the book of Daniel. It kind of reminds me of that, like the book of Daniel. It says that the great feast, King Belshazzar, it says that the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite of the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave away and his knees knocked together. This great feast is going on. Everybody's partying. Probably getting lit up. Just gorging themselves with everything imaginable. And then this hand comes mysteriously out and begins to write the judgments upon the wall. John 7.37, it says that Christ himself crashed a feast day. It says, on that last day of the feast, that great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Interestingly enough, he wasn't invited to that feast. He just stands up and cries out. The very thing that they probably didn't want to hear because they're enjoying themselves. They're just totally intoxicated, not just with alcohol, but with themselves, with false religion, their false view of God's law. And now here's Christ standing up, telling everybody to come to him and that he would give him this water and then never thirst again. They understood those words, even though they didn't necessarily agree that, you know, that it should be meant for Christ. They understood what he was saying. 
He was saying, depart from this and come to me. This brings us to our third and last point, a repentant people. We see people coming to repentance. We see the people of God together coming to repentance. And I really believe this is the heart of God. Not just our little corporate church, but the biblical churches across this country. That they, we, we would really, you know, rend our hearts and, and return to the Lord. Many of you say, well, that's, you know, it's not for me. I mean, you're talking about somebody else. Well, possibly. But I will bet you two to one that every single one of us in this building could find something to repent of. Right? Something in our lives that just isn't right. Something that needs to be addressed. Something that needs to be dealt with. Secret sin. You know, things going on. And uh, by no means am I using this as a bully pulpit. But I am saying that, speaking to all of us, including myself, that, you know, I could tell you one thing right now that would be an issue with me. I could do more um, for those out there who are suffering. I could have my heart, you know, more uh, in tune with the pain that's going on in this world. With all that, this is just me. Okay, with the child trafficking and all the things that are going on, I feel at times that I'm kind of cold-hearted towards it all. I'm indifferent. I'm calloused. And I shouldn't be. You know, I should be like just bawling my eyes out 24-7 at the atrocities that are going on in this country and around the world. But the, the, the atrocity is, is that I'm not weeping. I'm not broken like I should be. And that's scary to me. Like, why aren't you more upset? You're more concerned about dinner then you're about the fact that people are literally being sold into the slave market sexually. I mean, I'm just saying one thing. There's a million things out there. But I'm just saying for myself personally, I feel like, you know, um, there's a lot more that I could be doing. You know, I just, I, it just it, it's shattering, you know. But we can all find something. And I know it won't take long in our own hearts. And because we're doing communion today, it's a beautiful time to deal with that today to deal with our own hearts, to deal with the callousness, the indifference, the apathy, the coldness towards people that are dying and and going to hell all around us. How many times have we ignored, uh, you know, others that we know need the gospel, but we find ourselves, you know, staying silent when we should speak up. It says here that... um, so the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Gil, John Gill, when he's speaking of these Baals, which would be more of like a, a Baal, could really be, you can use that word as Lord, um, as gods who had dominion. Um, you could put that in front of any one of their gods. It all worked. And the Ashtoreth really was a female deity. It was worshiping these female goddesses. You see the Ashtoreth poles, um, that were that were erected. I mean, I've heard all kinds of things what those represent, and just I mean, it's just just this reality of of these. It was really the idols uh, of, of of women that they would secretly worship. They would secretly a fetish of worshiping these women secretly. Ashtoreth is really the preeminent goddess in the Bible, and the plural Ashtoreth is a generic term for goddesses used together with Balaam as a collective term for illicit, illicit worship. Gil says the idols of the women, he said, you secretly worship. The images of Astart, 
a female fertility god seen as the goddess of war and the goddess of sex. Not much has changed, has it? Think about that. You know, you think, you ever get tired of the people that always say, oh, I cannot believe Israel, you know, always sinning against God, always rebelling against God. And then you look at the condition of Christianity in this country, and you're like, wait a minute, hold on. Or you look at your own heart, and you stop always saying that, and you realize that there's even, you know, idolatry that happens continually in our own hearts. Look what John, John Calvin famously said. He says, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. A modern translation would say, the human condition is driven by idolat- idolatry. It's driven by idolatry. Samuel said, gather all of Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Dr. Lightfoot observes and he says that a spirit of repentance and conversion came generally upon all the people at that particular time. And he goes on to say, a matter and a time as remarkable as almost any that we read in Scripture. There's only one time parallel to that, and that's the book of Acts. Think about that for just a moment. Think about this, this just mighty revival that takes place. I mean, it's, you know, they're held in slavery and in bondage to these women goddesses. I mean, these they're worshiping these, these women, this illicit, these illicit behavior with, 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 with um, idols, you know. And think, think about Solomon. I mean, Solomon, man, he strayed because he was all caught up in Ashtoreth poles and all of that, you know. And also the, the service and worship of, listen to this, Moloch, out of all the things that Solomon could have been a part of, is that he also worshipped Moloch. And what do they do when they worship Moloch? They give their babies to this damnable God. There's no God at all. But think about this for just a moment. I would say that, you know, at some point, you may disagree with this, but, um, I mean, Solomon is probably one of the greatest abortionists in our history of humankind. He had all those wives producing all of those babies, he had plenty of food for Moloch. He was addicted to these things. Read the history of this. He was addicted to these things. To such an extent, read the Bible. Read where it talks about his life. Read Ecclesiastes where he repents of these things. You know, but it was it was there. It was there. And he was consumed, you know, and the, and, and the scriptures even tell him, I mean, the kings would even have to write out the Torah reminding them be careful you don't give yourself away to other women because your heart will stray from the Lord. And that's exactly what he did. And to such an extent, you know, he produced a very large manufacturing company to produce babies for Moloch. How do I know this? Because he had thousands of concubines and he worshiped Moloch. Put it together. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty damnable. It's pretty scary. But the Bible says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. 
The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins. And not only that, he'll purify us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. I mean, the answer to any problem in our nation always is going to go back to the church and biblical repentance. We can't expect politicians to heal our land. Okay, only thing we can expect is the people of God that the Lord has saved, sanctified, and is kept here on the earth to be salt and light to the earth. You know, it's our responsibility, and we're held accountable for that, um, to, to repent of our sin. You know, we see our sin, instead of hiding it or trying to somehow sanctify it, to renounce it and to repent and to be restored unto the Lord, not only just you personally in your own sin, but corporately as the people of God coming together, seeking the Lord, crying out to God, believing God that he will hear us as he heard his people throughout all of Scripture. And he will. You want to see our land healed of, of killing kids? You want to see our land healed of trafficking and all of these just gross Sin of just the homosexual agenda. I can't even, at this point in my life, I can't even name all the different movements that are going on. There are so many different things going on today with all this trans this, trans that, this that, self-identify as this. It's so nutty and so insane. The only way this can be healed is by our sovereign Lord. And when his people cry out and call upon the name of the Lord, and repent of our own sin, that God would hear us and he would heal our land. God does that. I don't care what your eschatology is or your view of end times. I would say God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. And he does hear the cries and prayers of his people. I'll leave you with this. Remember, as you walk out of here today, that God has called you to be a guardian of the truth. Guard that truth with your life. Don't change it. Don't compromise. Don't be a coward. Be a guardian of the word of God. Number two, speak up. Speak up. It may cost you your life. It may cost you your job. It may cost you everything. But I'll tell you what, when you stand before Christ, it's pleasing in his sight. Speak up. Do not keep silent. And number three, remember to gather with the people of God. Gather with the people of God. And we must remember for all of us, we must repent corporately. We must be always ready to repent as the people of God. Always ready. It doesn't matter what your sin is. You're not a special sinner. Okay? Everybody has violated the law of God. And many of us today are fighting with things, fighting with addictions, fighting with different things going on in our lives. But listen to me. You're, you cannot out the grace of God. And God is here. You know, he's not in some box. Um, he's here. He's ever-present. And whatever your sin is, repent. Really, honestly, it, it, it's, that, it's that easy. <clears throat> easy, not easy believism, but it's easy enough to where God is not a, diff, it's not a mathematical equation. We've got to somehow figure out, stand on one foot, do a special dance and a backflip in order to be forgiven. It's It's... It's coming to Christ in true biblical repentance. Okay, repentance is a gift from God. You don't get saved because of your repentance. You get saved because God moves in your heart and grants you the gift of repentance and faith. 
And that's calling upon him. Seeing your sin as it is. Seeing it, being broken, being contrite. And calling upon the name of the Lord. And asking him to move once again amongst his people. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, I pray, Father, that um, this message <clears throat> broke through the, the barriers of our, of our hearts, Lord, and our minds this morning. Lord, I pray that you would awaken us as well, not only just to our own sin, where we sit around and just nurse our own sin all day, but God, that we would, we would die to ourselves and think about others. It could just be a simple thing, Lord, of, of, of just spending our time on relieving the pain of another person would inevitably relieve our own pain. Lord, help us to be about others, not just consumed with our own lives, what we get and what we want. We've become a nation of powders, Lord. Set us free. Give us the mind of Christ. Give us the heart of God. Help me, Lord, to, to, to break out of any kind of... Um, lukewarmness and coldness and indifference. How disgusting. Lord, have your way today. Move in power. We're here for you, Lord. We are only on this earth to glorify your name. We're here because we belong to you. Our only purpose is to worship you and make you known. Be glorified in this. In Jesus' name, amen.